It's absolutely frightening. It's absolutely scary. I think nobody knows or has the answers. If we were a non-essential business, this may have been our last week working together. What thing could absolutely rock the world that would just shut things down? And God, was I wrong. It's kind of like having survivor guilt. You know, you're the one guy that made it when everybody else didn't. Hi, everybody. My name is Kelly Martin, and you are listening to Making It Work, made possible by FedEx. In our first season, we spoke to 10 entrepreneurs about what it's really like to run a small business in 2019. As 2020 brings with it a global health crisis and economic uncertainty, we check in with four of them to see how they've been affected. Over two very special episodes of Making It Work, we'll be seeing how coronavirus is taking its toll on these founders' businesses and lives. Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. Things are not normal. I know that because I'm recording this intro in my living room, wearing pyjamas. But if anything makes me feel relatively unaffected by this crisis, it's speaking to four entrepreneurs whose lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. And you could probably guess the mood of our conversations. When oil shares have tumbled to below zero, unemployment has gone through the roof, and the President of the United States is sending you checks through the mail, you know that small businesses are being hit hard. But as I spoke to our entrepreneurs over the phone, I started to learn that was only half the truth. There are winners in this crisis, even amongst our four founders. Although we'll begin with the ones who haven't been so lucky. Let's start with Dana. You probably remember her as the owner of Anna Ono, a company she founded after being diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 27. They make lingerie and provide support for women who've undergone mastectomies. I started by asking her, as one big C in her life is replaced by another, how she's keeping her head above water. I think the fashion industry in general has taken a horrible hit, and I feel lucky that we have an online business that really supports um, us and our structure. But when all of the retail stores are forced to close, I really worry about their ability to recover and come back um, after these these store closures. And and that leaves our business unknown. Um, about 50% of our business is serving retail stores. So, you know, we're also reliant on them reopening. And um, I feel like even with the government aid, which is already appearing to be incredibly limiting uh, to small businesses, much, much more so than what they're projecting or putting out there, uh, I worry that a lot of these stores won't be able to reopen. Have you seen a slowdown in online sales because of your customers' economic uncertainty? I, In a way, for us, it's a little too soon to tell. I think that uh, being at the front end of this, we are expecting online sales to slow. The unknown here is that we've never been through something like this before as a country in our lifetime. So to know that all of these people are being laid off from their jobs, even though they're getting great unemployment rates, you know, those don't last forever. So how do the companies recover after the pandemic and how many people actually get to go back to work? I'm grateful that we are an essential business and that these patients, you know, need us to help recover and to get through their treatment and to feel good about themselves. And thankfully we all need underwear or maybe arguably don't. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> In terms of the uncertainty 
around coronavirus. How is your business dealing with that? It's absolutely frightening. It's absolutely scary. I think nobody knows or has the answers. And even knowing that we're weeks behind China's pandemic and seeing how they're going back to society, even slowly in steps and in phases, it's really scary because I think for small businesses, you know, we're, we're all poised for growth. We're all trying to build our businesses. And it's a challenge not having that question answered because we can only predict and plan to a prediction. There really isn't any hard, fast rules here. Have the government offered any help for small businesses? It's a very conflicting Space. I think that the media has done a very good job positioning and poising the opportunities that the government appear to be giving to people and to small businesses. But as a small business owner, you can't help but feel like they are a bit misguided. Uh, I have applied for every loan that has been published and pushed out by the government. And these grants or these loans are closing within 24 to 48 hours because they're reaching the caps of the people that are applying for them. And uh, it's frustrating to know that the money's there, but it's almost like winning the lottery. What more do entrepreneurs need to see in terms of support from the government, do you think? I would like to see tiered opportunities from the government because maybe you can help thousands of businesses of 25 employees or less, and maybe you can only help dozens of businesses that are 500 employees. And I feel like that would help separate because right now we don't even really know how we're getting picked for these loans. We're applying for them. And then you hear the money gets, the money's gone and you don't really know, well, why didn't I get the money and why did another company get it? So it's not first come, first serve. There is some sort of method behind the madness. You just don't know what it is. It, if it's first come, first serve, it's, the money is running out very quickly. I applied. I was a number 35 on an application for a Pennsylvania grant, and our money ran out in Pennsylvania in 48 hours. So you don't think that application number 35 is that late <laughs> and the money was gone. Before you told me that you'd prepared for this situation going on for six months and this situation going on for 12 months, in terms of a six-month scenario and a 12-month scenario, how different are those? Oh, good question. A 12-month scenario is very complex in our world because we also have to assume that our countries of manufacturing are also in trouble. And really, that, that is our doomsday scenario, right? And I think that every business owner should look at that because you have to know or you have to have a plan. If doomsday comes, what does it look like for your business and can you survive it? And a six-month scenario, when you lay it out, then maybe there's a silver lining, right? Maybe that's your glimpse of hope to say, okay, it's going to be really hard for six months, but I've done everything I can do to make sure that I make it to that window. And then it's going to start getting better. I've heard from a lot of business owners that during the boom time, you've got to save money. You've got to prepare for when the economy might go kaput. For businesses like yours, it probably feels like you're always struggling a little bit. So do you have that luxury of preparing during so-called boom times? 
I think that that's the most interesting part of this is that startup and small businesses function incredibly differently than what a quote unquote small business of 499 people function like. And when you're growing and you're scaling, this is almost the time when your cash is the tightest because you're in this influx of growth. So you're spending all of your money constantly just keeping up with your growth. So you're right. There's not really, you're not stockpiling profits because you have to spend your profits constantly in order to sustain your growth. And that, what I think was this biggest struggle for me as a startup and scaling small business was to say, our strategy for the next 12 months completely changed in 24 hours. In the very first episode of Making It Work, all about when business owners should start paying themselves, Dana told me this. But when times get tough, the owner or the founder is likely the last one to get paid. So you also have to be ready and willing and able to not draw that in one month if it's not there. You know, cash, cash is king. So if there's no cash, you can't get paid. In the midst of this turmoil, her words kind of take on more significance. Dana was always clear that you needed money in the bank for a rainy day. The only problem is that rainy day turned out to be more of a monsoon. She's not the only one that's having trouble getting her hands on government money meant for cash-strapped businesses. Diana Gans co-founded wedding suit and tuxedo business, The Groomsman Suit, in 2016. She was in the middle of launching a new brand with her business partner, Jean, when COVID-19 hit. Now that's on hold, and a once thriving business is just trying to find enough money to stay afloat. I did not, I don't think anyone really saw this coming. I would love to say that I, you know, could have been a, a lot more perceptive of the reality of it coming to the U.S. And I mean, it's it's embarrassing, but like even, you know, I had friends reach out and say, you know, how is this affecting you? Or even I had, we had investors ask and I was like, you know, people are still going to get married. <laughs> it's like, I thought really, and, and again, embarrassingly, like I thought we were somewhat protected because who, I mean, especially when you're getting married in 2020, like who's going to reschedule that? Like what thing could absolutely rock the world that would just shut things down? And God, was I wrong. Like, we just, I mean, I literally said, no, people are going to still get married. Like, it's not going to be a big deal. And I mean, they are going to get married, but their timeline has completely shifted. And so I, I, you know, we were kind of completely wrong. I think the one thing that I am so proud of, and I think we're finding opportunities in during this crisis is like, how are we do, how are we managing our business differently? And fortunately for us, for the groomsman suit and some more, and, and I think some other e-commerce brands are feeling this way too. Like we were born online. We've been a digitally native brand while sales did plummet. They didn't come to like an absolute, like, you know, stop. We are still getting orders every day. We are, you know, doing enough to kind of keep things going until we can get through this. But, you know, one of the things that really this all this made us do is like really get back to the basics, you know, really say, well, you know, who are we and why did we start this company? And we started the company to be a very, you know, convenient online 
affordable option for wedding suiting and tuxedos. And so instead of, you know, while we had to close all of our showrooms, we quickly pivoted to launch a virtual showroom for our customers. And we've been doing virtual showroom appointments with engaged couples across the country. Is that not frustrating? Because like you say, you did everything right, you are online. And because of the nature of your business and what you sell, rather than at the moment stealing market share from brick and mortar competition, you've seen a drop in sales. It is incredibly frustrating, but it's also one of those things, Tom, it's like, you you can be frustrated and devastated by it for like the first week. And then you're like, there is nothing that we can do to change this situation. Like this is going to run its course. So as a business owner and, and as an entrepreneur, like we have to figure out how to adjust. And fortunately for us, we're still a small company that can pivot really quickly. You know, it's our competitors who are huge and massive and they have hundreds of stores and, and, you know, the debt that they're taking on on a daily hourly basis because of all this overhead has got to be just crippling. And I think over the next year, especially for retail, there's going to be a lot of changes. Like this is going to change how people shop. I just read an article in Forbes yesterday about, you know, how this is going to put a serious tax on some of the biggest department stores, biggest, oldest department stores. And and truly, it will be interesting to see how they fare. Do you think in the fashion industry, this crisis has been a bit of a leveler then? Yeah, for sure. There have been a lot of big, like I said, brands that have, you know, kind of been hanging on by a thread, really. Unfortunately, some of those brands are going to go out of business or they're going to rework themselves and they're going to come back even stronger, right or wrong. We didn't lay people off right away. We held strong um, because we, we, being an online brand, there's still a lot of work to be done. So we saw this as an opportunity to get those done. And thankfully, we didn't lay anyone off because, you know, then weeks last week, the stimulus package, the details of the stimulus package were announced and they have... Uh, an offering for paycheck protection program, which, you know, who knows, it's still very up in the air how that is going to get dispersed and how that's all and how it's all going to get worked out. It's been very difficult to navigate. It's been, I think, very emotional for small business owners in the U.S. Like we, I know, I mean, tons of friends in ranging from anything in the you know, restaurant, retail, tech, you know, industries and, um, and and nobody seems to like kind of know exactly what's going to happen, but we're trusting, you know, in our government and in the process. I've heard a lot of small businesses are having problems getting their hands on these payment protection loans. And I'm talking about this like hypothetically, but you know, we put our application in on the first day the pay the Paycheck Protection Program came out. So there are two programs. There's the Paycheck Protection Program, and then there's the Small Business Disaster Relief Fund. I ha- We have applied to both. We applied to the SBA Disaster Relief Fund in the, mi- in the middle of March. I have not heard from them. Like, there has been no word. I, have, I really do have to reach out and check in on our application. But, I mean, it was a very frustrating application process. The website kept breaking. And then we applied for the Paycheck Protection Program on the first day it opened. And again, that was a week ago. No word. So you don't know yet whether you've been approved for this 
grant from the government? No. It's very unnerving because, you know, we are trying to keep our employees employed. Um, and we're just, we really are holding out hope that we will get this money. Um, but I will tell you, you know, if we go into, you know, over the next, I would say three to four weeks and there's no sign, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very difficult. You're listening to a Making It Work special coming up. We've got people that have just 100% shut their doors, facing losing their homes, facing losing their futures, like everything that they had banked on died overnight. The business culture around myself, it's it's sort of scary. Did the, did the strong survive? No, the ones that are survivors survived. The, I think the other ones were gonna get wiped out by any sort of thing that was going to happen. How does it feel to be successful amongst all of the anxiety and, and misery? I would say it's wearing on me. Before we called up Diana, Dana, David and Danny to ask how things were going, I was definitely expecting the worst. But as we got chatting, I realised the only thing these business owners had in common was that their names all began with the letter D, which I promise is not a prerequisite of appearing on this podcast. The truth is, the effect of coronavirus, which has essentially had us all cooped up at home, has brought with it an unprecedented boom in online sales, at least for some entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs like David Patrick. He's a serial business owner that founded Shark Wheel in 2013. This crisis has seen a huge spike in sales for David, which makes perfect sense, because when you're preparing to hunker down, you buy food, toilet paper, and of course, skateboards. It's like Christmas time. Um, so many people are locked inside or at home and they don't have anything to do. So they're buying recreational type stuff like skateboards and our sales are off the chart. So that part of it is very, very strange in that it seems like the world is shut down, but our business is up, you know, triple, quadruple what it would normally be at this time of year. Were you surprised by this increase in sales? When the crisis hit, did you think, wow, we were in trouble? Um, never thought we were in trouble. We're a really good company and we I knew we had enough runway to get through it because we're so diversified in the stuff that we do. But yeah, I was absolutely surprised and I didn't know if it was something that we were doing right on, you know, advertising or something like that. And I asked my partner, I said, what are we doing? And he said, nothing. We turned it all off. And I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. So I started calling my friends that are in the same industry and they were all reporting the same thing, that their sales were just crazy. And I was like, wow, this is a very interesting position to be in. How does it feel to have such a boom in sales at the moment when you know so many other businesses are struggling to stay alive? That's an interesting thing. It's kind of like having survivor guilt. You know, you're the one guy that made it when everybody else didn't, and you have a guilt because of that. I guess in your network, there are plenty of entrepreneurs who who are struggling at the moment. What are they saying to you? What are they experiencing? They're absolutely devastated. We've got people that have just 100% shut their doors, facing losing their homes, facing losing their futures, like everything that they had banked on died overnight. And that is so difficult to hear. You know, you're really 
how do you console somebody when they're like that? It's like they've got this whole, you know, master plan for their life and then something like this comes in and it just literally crushes them. Can you prepare for something like this? Do you think people were complacent? I I know I don't think you can. Um you can, you know, it's one, it's like being one of those prepper people where it's like, can you stockpile a lot of food and toilet paper and things like that to prepare for a bad time? And it's like, yeah, you can always do that, but you do eventually get to the point where you run out of resources. And this is one of those times where I don't think anybody could predicted this big of a monumental global change where everything's been disrupted, not your local community, not a single product is out of stock. It's the whole kit and caboodle. And you can't prepare for that. You'd have to just crawl in a hole and live under a rock the rest of your life. And that's just not the way business is. Do you think that small businesses took anything for granted before this crisis hit? I think that if, if, if anything was taken for granted, it was that the status quo would remain. Um, and that was or, you know, definitely something that uh, didn't get accounted for. Um, people weren't prepared for something like this. And as we mentioned earlier, I don't know how you necessarily could truly prepare for something like this without becoming crazy. You maybe can't prepare for something that's once in a lifetime like COVID-19, but you can prepare for economic recession, can't you? Absolutely. And that side of it, I think we did extraordinarily well. We were always prepared for one of these markets to die or one of these products to suddenly become obsolete or some sort of competitor to suddenly show up at a cheaper price that was going to hurt us in a segment. Any company should be doing that. You shouldn't be focused on a single sector or a single segment where if that sector, a new competitor shows up that you know you just can't compete with, you're going to get hosed. You can't be that way. Some would say your view is pretty Darwinian for an event that was unforeseeable. Mm. Look, those that were inefficient or those that weren't trying to think ahead or trying to innovate their way to success, I have, an, I have a saying, you either innovate or you imitate. If you imitate, you are always behind the curve. You are always following. If you innovate, you are always leading. It's much more risk to be an innovator than an imitator. But if you're an imitator and you're not innovating in your business, you risk catastrophe when these kind of things happen because you're just one of those Johnny come lately. You're not a pioneer. You're a settler. And, you know, there's an old saying pioneers get slaughtered, you know, but that's one of the things that I know has made us successful is we are truly based on innovation. You can't just you know, rest on your laurels and say, oh, this is what I am and this is what I'm always going to be. It's like the, the world doesn't work that way anymore. A YouTube can get supplanted by a new, you know, online platform. It's like you can't just be that guy. You've got to be out there in all different kinds of channels making it happen. So Darwinian, did the, did the strong survive? No. The ones that our survivors survived. They, I think the other ones were going to get wiped out by any sort of thing that was going to happen. There was probably you know, five or six different economic things that would have wiped them out. Um, that's just because they weren't, that kind, they weren't really a great company. When David talks about his success, he always makes it sound like he just got lucky. In the last season, he told us some influencer happened to give Shark Wheel a load of free publicity. 
This time around, a global pandemic that's wreaked havoc on the world has pushed his sales to record highs. But trust me, none of this happened by accident. When David talks about diversification and innovation, he practices what he preaches. And while I don't agree with all of his laissez-faire, adapt-or-die rhetoric, you can't accuse the guy of resting on his laurels. Let's finish up on another success story. You might remember Danny Cotullo from season one. He's the third generation butcher from Ohio that saw a bright future in shipping perishable foods. And sales have gone crazy. The problem is, Danny soon learned that a surge in sales isn't too much fun when no one else is invited to the party. What's been unique about this is, you know, I went to I went to Ohio State University and there wasn't any classes on how to operate a business during a pandemic. So it's been it's been unique. It's it's new waters. It's not really not really having a playbook. And also it's been this major influx of business that, you know, for both of my businesses, I felt like we were prepared for. Um, we had solutions in place to to have the businesses grow, but being that it was so fast and unexpected, it wasn't like holidays where you're expecting to have a two or three x bump. It was in the middle of March. It really it really has you focus on um, making sure that you are operating as efficiently as possible while trying to understand how long this is going to last. Is the success you're experiencing flash in the pan, do you think, or is this something that can continue? We believe that although it won't always be this busy, the new normal is going to settle in somewhere in between. And so many of these purchases that are being made for our clients' brands are new people, new consumers to the perishable food market. And once they learn that they can have their immunity boost shots from Vive or their almond milk lattes from Pop and Bottle or their ice cream from Van and ice cream to arrive at the doorstep safely, we believe that they're going to make more purchases in the future. So this sort of unique time is, is really showing consumers that there are things like Instacart, DoorDash, and being able to buy your food on Amazon.com. And I think that it's going to really change the way the market is once this is all over. Why did it take this Black Swan event to boost consumer confidence in, in perishable shipping? What was the problem before, do you think? So the industry for, and especially this sector of buying food online, is relatively new. And so Blue Apron, HelloFresh really were the first explosion of opening up the market by spending millions of dollars to market their businesses online. And it really just allowed new adopters, early adopters to try buying food and experiencing it to be able to arrive safely at their doorstep again for the first time. What was happening was there still was a mistrust of buying food online. Were people paying too much extra for the convenience of it going to their doorstep? Um, did they want to be making purchases at work for it to arrive later at their house? It really was just a new way of thinking about buying food. And it took really this event for people to A, make the purchase, and B, learn how easy it is to do it. How does it feel to be successful amongst all of the anxiety and, and misery amongst other entrepreneurs? I would say it's wearing on me. 
I've been an entrepreneur for a long time, and I have many friends and colleagues that are owning a small business or working for startups or owning a startup. And I see many of them struggling financially with their businesses, some that are closing down. And to experience such a successful run while your close friends and family members are not, it's it's definitely difficult because you can't share in that same celebration that you normally would if the economy was going well and everybody was experiencing the same sort of success that I was. What are other businesses in Youngstown telling you at the moment? What are their concerns? Where I'm from in Youngstown, Ohio, you know, we're part of the Rust Belt. So we have a lot of businesses that are based on manufacturing and manufacturing is down right now. And we have a lot of restaurants and local restaurants because we have such a large European influence. There isn't a ton of chain restaurants around here. So my restaurant owner friends are also struggling as well. The business culture around myself um, in Youngstown, Ohio, it's, it's sort of scary um, because we have so many businesses that are either shut down or operating at halftime or, or not really operating in full go mode. What it has done is for ourselves, for our businesses, is we've been able to provide opportunities for those that are not at working. If you were in another line of business, would you have been prepared? Would you would you have had the cash flow, for instance, to s- survive this? No, I would not. Um, I was telling my staff in both businesses a couple weeks after it happened that you know if we were if we were a non-essential business, um, this may have been our last week working together. And so we needed to appreciate that we were still able to go to work. We were still able to to work, to be able to make a paycheck, to be able to continue our business. Most small businesses are unprepared to not be operating for months. And it's sort of unfair to expect any small business to keep that sort of cash or credit ready to go. And so the government needs to help us out to be able to prepare, um, to be able to continue to go back um, onto our feet. The government needs to help out so that we can get back on our feet and be able to continue doing what makes America um, so special and unique is having so many small businesses really drive the economy. We hear that small businesses are the backbone of the US economy all the time. Do you think it takes a crisis like this for people to actually believe it? I think it takes a crisis like this to realize how fragile small businesses are and that by the power of their purchase, the power of their dollar, when you're a consumer, you don't necessarily think how it's affecting the small business when you go to a large business to buy your pizza instead or to go spend money on your groceries or to spend money on a piece of clothing. You don't think all the time about where that dollar is going. Now that so many of these small businesses are being struck by this virus and not having the capital to be able to keep going, I think it's really shown a light on how important it is as a consumer to be supporting these small businesses. Let's talk about the butcher shop, Danny. You have two businesses. You have a perishable shipping business. You also have a brick and mortar butcher shop. Uh, have you bought any riot gear to fend off all of your customers? 
we we are trying to make sure there's still a fair amount of distancing between us and the customers. That first day where people really started panicking and making purchases of food to stock up their freezers and their fridges, it was it was wild. We were going from an average ticket price of thirty to forty dollars per customer that walked into our store to over $125 per customer. People were coming in and buying as many chicken breasts as they could fit in the freezer, uh, burgers and sausages, and you name it. So it was really a unique time. The craziest thing I saw was there was there's a brand new client that's coming into our store, a brand new customer, because They've never, they never shopped at a butcher shop before. We have a customer base that's been shopping with us. You know, some people have been shopping with us for three generations. Their grandparents shopped with my grandfather, their parents shopped with my father, and now they're shopping with me. We had some clients, you know, potential customers in there that didn't understand how to shop at our business or were impatient um, by how long it took us to do things. Everything that we do is hand cut, it's hand wrapped, it's done special. And so we had these clients, these consumers that came into our store that were impatient. Um, they were stressed out by what's going on and they were upset that it was taking so long. What was fairly amazing and maybe a little bit strange was our clients that always shopped with us, not only coming to our defense by how long it was taking, but helping support us by showing the new consumers that were walking into our store on how to best shop within a butcher shop. That sort of sense of community, um, that sense of compassion and, and helpfulness during a time of crisis was pretty special to see. These millennials have never been to a butcher shop in their lives, Danny. <laughs> not, not everybody shops at a butcher shop. I found that out. <laughs> Coming up in part two of this special. When we took a hit from our position with our retail stores, we had to furlough several of our employees. This company is a vibrant, loud, noisy, chaotic, fun place to be. And now it's like a graveyard. Nobody's interrupted this podcast. That is just unbelievable. I'm extremely worried that we're going to have a case of coronavirus. We don't have it all figured out, so I'm... <laughs> if anybody has advice for me, I will love that. <laughs> That's it for part one of this Making It Work special. We would love to know what you think, so remember to rate this podcast. And if you don't want to miss out on part two, be sure to subscribe. Thanks to our entrepreneurs, Danny Catullo, Dana Donafrey, Diana Gans, and David Patrick. Making It Work is produced by Yolene Margrie, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg with creative direction from Jeroen von Koenigshoven. Music is by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub in Memphis, Tennessee. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin. Stay safe, everybody.